Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Amen. In good times and bad, he is on throne. It's good, good news. Amen. Thank you, worship team, very much. Personally, and, and those of you who know me uh, know this because it doesn't take very long to discover that I'm much better at breaking things than fixing things, I am not what anybody would consider or confuse with a handyman. Uh, I'm not particularly good at, at fixing things, like I said, much better at, at breaking them and having somebody else fix them. Now, everybody brings different skills to a relationship, I'm sure there's something I bring to mine and my family. I can tell you my wife brings a lot, which is really good, uh, including the ability to fix things, which is great, much better that when things break, that, that somebody can fix them rather than just having to re- replace them all the time. So that's one of the skills and gifts that she brings is that she can, she can fix stuff. So, so here's what happened, I think. When she was younger, uh, she was really curious about stuff, loved learning things, loved seeing how things get put together, kind of you can take them apart, put them back together, all that kind of stuff. When, when the repairmen would come over to fix things or when her parents were working on stuff, she'd want to know what they were doing and how they were doing it and that kind of thing. Very curious, learning stuff, really good. Uh, my kids are also curious like that. That's fabulous. Uh, I was really curious when I was a kid uh, about, about video games and sports. End of list. Like, I, that was... That's pretty much it, video games and sports. Uh, and it, it turns out, uh, being really curious about video games and sports as a kid doesn't translate into adulthood real well. Like, it just doesn't. Uh, I even did. Uh, uh, yeah, video games and sports. Uh, that was about My dad tried. My, my dad wanted to invite me along to learn how to fix things, and, and, but, but it wasn't video games or sports, or I guess by the time he was trying to teach me those things, girls was also on that list. That was about it. That was about it. And, and my dad was not, we weren't, he was trying to fix things. It wasn't video games, sports, or girls. So I, was, I was out, which has kind of been a problem because, again, skills that translate to adulthood, like fixing things, weren't really there. So the good news is that Wendy has been around to fix things. And, and over the last decade or so, she has very graciously allowed me to uh, attempt more and more to fix things, even if that means she just has to come along and fix it later. But I'm getting better. I'm, I'm fixing some stuff, and, and that's because I have discovered uh, a secret weapon for learning how to fix things. YouTube. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there are videos on YouTube for the things you need to know how to fix. So, uh, like, I, I heard somebody, this one wasn't me, but I, I heard somebody the other day was really excited. He's not a really a handyman guy either. And he was really excited because he had fixed the little plastic thing that keeps the soap in in the dishwasher. Like, I, I don't know how to fix that. But somebody on YouTube does. So you can, you can type your very specific question into your favorite internet search engine, and it will come up with some video where somebody has said, hey, I know how to fix this thing. I'll make a video, and somebody else can find it. Now, I don't know exactly what goes through people's minds when they decide to make these videos, because again, I'm not making handyman videos for anybody. But my guess is it goes something like, you know, I know how to do this. Somebody else might, 
And when they type their very specific, how do I fix this question into their favorite search engine, my video will be there to help them figure out how to fix it. Now, I don't know if they're hoping to go viral with their how to fix the plastic thing in the dishwasher video, but probably not. My guess is it's just, here's the thing I know how to do. Somebody else may want to know how to do this. And this very specific question will lead them to me and I will help them fix it. And I'm very grateful for those people because it means I can look stuff up and, and watch. Some of us are a little slow, so watch two or three times. Also on YouTube, you can uh, adjust the speed so they talk very slowly if you need them to. So I, eventually, after five or six of those, I can figure out how to fix something-ish. So that's, that's really good. I, I think sometimes we treat the Bible in a similar way. Like, we think, well, if I have a really specific question, I'll bring it to the Bible and come up with a really specific answer. Or we think, well, if I have a question about spirituality, like spiritual things, kind of in that realm of religious stuff, then I could go to a book like the Bible and I, I could learn something spiritual. But unlike those YouTube video makers, the people who were inspired by God writing and collecting the scriptures we're not thinking, man, if somebody has a really specific spiritual question, they're going to be able to come to this book and figure out what the answer is. They're putting this together with the assumption that there are a couple of questions that we're all asking and, and that this book will have the answers to those questions and will explore and answer those questions. Specifically this morning, I want to talk about I think the three primary questions that the Bible is driven by and drives us to. Last week, uh, Sky did an awesome job talking about uh, kind of how we uh, approach the Bible. And this morning, we want to talk about how, how does the Bible, in some sense, approach us? Again, Sky said it's, it's not written to us, it's written for us. So, what is it written for? What, what questions is it trying to, or what questions is it? answering what questions is it asking and leave hanging so this morning we want to talk about three questions that kind of drive the the narrative of scripture drive the purpose of the book and then scripture answers just two of them and one of them is actually up to you to answer so we're going to explore these three questions throughout scripture but i think they show up most personally and maybe most clearly in the life of a man named Peter. Peter, for those of you who have not been introduced, is a man who followed Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry. He's one of Jesus's closest friends. And Peter had some shining moments and some not so shiny moments. Peter uh, was a passionate guy. And, and his passion often spilled out his mouth. And sometimes that led to these bold statements of faith that, that I go, oh man, I, I want that kind of boldness. And sometimes they came out in bold statements of wrong that got him in trouble. Uh, he was in some places uh, praised by Jesus for his faith. In other places, his faith was questioned. And one time, uh, Jesus just flat out called him Satan, which uh, that one is not on my bucket list to have Jesus call me Satan, uh, but that's, that's Peter's up and down uh, of kind of saying these big, bold, 
faith things and then also having to stick his foot in his mouth uh, because he said something dumb again. But in Peter's life through the Gospels, we see Peter sort of questioned three times. And I think they reflect these, these three questions that drive the, the narrative of, of Scripture. So let's look at these stories in Peter's life. The, the first one we're going to find in Matthew chapter 16. So we're jumping into the middle of this gospel here. So this is Matthew, who's also Jesus' follower. This is his account of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And, and for a while now, Jesus has had some people following him around. Specifically, he's tapped 12 people to be his closest disciples, and three of those, including Peter, to be his real core group. And they've been following him around, watching him teach, watching him heal, watching him say incredibly wise things that cause people to go, wow, there's something about this guy, these miracles that he's performing, these things that he's teaching. But then there's also some things that Jesus is teaching and saying that are causing people to go, wow, there's something about this guy that's just a little off. Like, I don't really know. Either way, Jesus is causing quite a stir. And, and so people are whispering, and there's, there's uh, rumors going on about him. And so one day as they're traveling, Jesus stops, and he turns to his disciples, and he says, okay, I'm hearing the whispers. What are you hearing? What do you hear people say? So we're jumping in right there. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So just a pause to say that this is a term Jesus is using and has used in his teaching, will continue to use, to pull this uh, Old Testament image, this prophetic image of who the Messiah, the Savior of, of the Jewish people is going to be. And one of the names was the Son of Man. So Jesus is using this as a real quick identifier for people who know those prophecies to go, oh, he's making a really big claim here. So so who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, all right, guys, what are the rumors? Who do people say that I am? And and notice that he's not asking so that he can figure out his identity. He he knows. He's, He's got that Son of Man identity already, this one sent from God, this, this son of man, son of God. He's, he's got this. And it's not, hey, tell me who I am, but, but what, are people, what are people saying? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the primary question that drives scripture, the primary question assumed and answered in scripture, who is God? Who is God? Again, the people putting together scripture inspired by God, they're not going, huh, I wonder if people will ask this question. Well, if they do, we'll give them a book so they can look into the answer. No, the assumption is that every soul is wrestling with this question, and I think as we look around, that becomes clear. Uh, As somebody on our staff pointed out as we were talking about this, you can't become an atheist without asking this question. Who is God? Now, the atheist may say, well, God is actually a series of scientific processes that people a long time ago didn't know how to explain, and so they just came up with this God idea. 
but God's just a, a bunch of scientific processes, atoms colliding together and making things happen. But we're still wrestling with this question. Now, some people aren't wrestling with it consciously, but, but we should be. This is a core question that every human soul is asking. And people come up with all kinds of answers to this question. God is that thing in nature. God is this statue I can make. God is a series of scientific processes. But every soul is wrestling with this question. A.W. Tozer, the 20th century theologian, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. Who is God? Now, as we look at these three questions this morning, I actually want to give us a little time and space to answer them. Because these are core questions to who we are and how we understand the world around us, how we understand ourselves. So you'll see there's some blank space on, on your notes there if you want to write it down, if you just want to think about it. I just want to give us 20 seconds of silence to simply reflect on this question. If this is the gravest question before the church, if this is the core question before every soul, let's just take a moment to pause and answer the question, who is God? I think it can be really tempting to try to put the right answer. But, but the truth is for you, the answer that's gonna matter the most is your answer. I mean, if, if your answer to that question, the first thing that comes to mind for you is that God is harsh or God is judgmental. It's gonna drastically affect how you see God, how you see the people around you, how you see the world. If your first answer is God is soft, God is weak, it's gonna make a difference, massive difference. From the very first pages, scripture sets out to answer this question. And they start by saying God is creative. The very beginning, the story of Genesis, God is is creative, and it would have been so starkly different from the other religions around them, where the world was started and human beings came to be out of some war of the gods or something sexual, violent, both. And they say, no, no, creation is the essence of God breathed out and spoken into existence. And God looked at it and said, it is good. And human beings aren't there to be an annoyance to God. God made them on purpose, and he said it's very good. God is, is creative and creating. Throughout the Old Testament, there is, are, are poems and stories and accounts and chronologies that, that help answer this question, the drive to answer this question, who is God? Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God is described as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, 
overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And then you fast forward toward the end of scripture and another Jesus follower named John said, God is love. Not God is loving, God is love. He is patient and kind. He may be jealous, but he is not envious. He tosses our sins as far as the east is from the west. He, he doesn't keep record of our wrongs when we ask for forgiveness. He is faithful. He is love. And then the climax of the story, climax of scripture, is Jesus showing up. God incarnate is man to reveal God's love and patience and make possible his forgiveness for all people who will belong to him. And so Jesus, God incarnate, says, hey guys, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. And put a pin in that name. We'll come back to that. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You do not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Peter, the impetuous one, the, the bold one, the passionate one is being called a rock. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you're going to be the one to lead my church. And eventually, as we'll see, Peter becomes core leader of this Jesus movement called the church, this movement that we are still a part of today. Peter had the right answer. Jesus said, yes, you got it. Now, there were lots of other people around Jesus who were wrestling with this question of who is Jesus. And the religious leaders of their time could not believe that who he was who he said he was. The leaders, the religious leaders of the Jewish people were so convinced that they knew the answer to who is God, that it, when Jesus came and revealed God to them, they said, nope, this does not fit in our little box of who God is, and so you must be lying, you must be wrong, because we're uncomfortable with this God that we've so nicely fit in a box and that you're kind of blowing out the sides of. And so they actually have Jesus arrested, and they say, no, no, you are not going to spread these things. And they put him on trial, and it's kind of, a sham of a trial, but they put him on trial in the middle of the night. They arrest him, and they put him before the council of religious leaders. And as they arrest him, Jesus' followers scatter. And Peter, from a safe distance, follows along and is standing outside the courtroom of sorts, watching what goes on. And here's how Matthew records this account. Starting in Matthew 26, let me skip ahead a few chapters, verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, 
ironic. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy, why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. And they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? This should be Peter's shining moment because we know he already knows the answer to this question. The high priest is basically asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is God? Peter knows he's got the right answer. Jesus told him so. But unfortunately for Peter, that is not the question he's asked. And the question he is asked comes in the form of accusations, and he absolutely fails to give the right answer. Very next verse. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, you're one of those with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed, and suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times you even know me. And he went away, weeping bitterly. Jesus had said this was going to happen. He had said he was going to be arrested. He had said he was, going to be, he was going to be convicted. He was going to die. And Peter said, no, 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 don't talk like that. Jesus said that one of his disciples was going to betray him. And Peter said, no, 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 no. Well, it's not going to be me. I'm going to stay with you even to death. And Jesus said, Peter, dude, think before you talk. He didn't say that, but he should have because Peter didn't a lot. He said, Peter, before we even get to the rooster crowing tomorrow morning, you're gonna deny three times you even know me. And then that's exactly what Peter does. Peter refused in this moment to wrestle with the second driving question of scripture, the question that our hearts all wrestle with that if we come up with any answer to who is God, that is a, a being of some sort that we can be in relationship with, that we could have some sort of responsibility to, our next question must be, who belongs to God? Okay, so who is God and who belongs to God? In the opening book in Genesis, God comes to a man named Abram, a guy who is who's old and does not have any kids, even though his name means father. And God says, not only are you father, but I'm going to change your name to Abraham. You're going to be father of many. 
I'm gonna give you a son, and through that son, through that line, I'm gonna create a nation of people, and they will be my people, and here's why, Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you and your descendants can be a blessing to others, so that other people can come to know me. You and your people will belong to me, and the world will come to know me through them. You will be blessed to be a blessing to others. And you go down a few generations, and Abraham's family becomes a tribe, and that tribe becomes a nation, and the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. And sometimes they really like that badge of being God's chosen people. They say, yes, we are God's chosen people. And sometimes they go, eh, this isn't really working for us. And they strip that badge and they throw it away. And they say, actually, we'd rather answer the who is God question like our neighbors do because they've got gods of, uh, of idols, like carved things that we can sort of control. And that feels, that feels better. Or, or uh, they, they worship God of sex and food. And we like those things. So we'll worship those gods and then things don't go very well for them and, and they come back and, and God continually over and over is inviting them back to re-answer the question of who is God and to re-enter into this relationship where they belong to him. But by the time Jesus has come around, by the time Jesus is, is on earth doing his earthly ministry, the leaders of Israel have taken this claim of being God's chosen people and they made it about people and not about God. They made it about them. They said, we're blessed because we're God's chosen people. They, they've, they've made it about themselves, that God's blessing is for them. Not, not that we'd ever fall into that trap. that we'd be more interested in, in praying to God for a parking space or a raise than, than hey God, how, how can you use me to be a blessing to other people? They made it about themselves and the blessing stopped with them, chosen to be blessed, not blessed to be a blessing. And then, and then this Jesus guy comes along and he kind of blows the walls off the boxes. And he said, let me reveal God's heart to you. And, and after he's arrested, they've condemned him to death and they follow through on it because they're sure that to kill him will end these lies and will let them go back to their comfortable boxes of who God is. And Jesus not only... <laughs> blows the walls off their boxes. He literally rips the curtain that separates them from the presence of God. And this movement called the church starts. And there are people who are claiming that not only did Jesus die, but he rose from the dead. The power they thought they had over Jesus and his people was disrupted and ruptured as Jesus rolled away the stone and walked out of the grave. And this movement begins that they feel like they have to figure out how to stop 
Because every time they press down on Jesus and every time they press down on his people, it's like pressing down on something that squishes out the sides and spreads and it's taking off and it's going into neighboring communities and they push down on the people and they just spread farther. And this message of hope, this message of forgiveness, this message of new life just keeps spreading. And pretty quickly, it's, it's not just Jewish people who are coming to follow Jesus, but it's, it's their neighbors, nations, people who, who would not grow up saying, well, we're God's chosen people, but are being invited into the family of Jesus. But there are a lot of Jewish people who've grown up with this idea that we're God's chosen people. And so they're looking around at these Gentiles, which just means not Jewish, these people from their neighboring nations coming to them, and, and saying, well, well, we want to belong to, to God too. We, we want to be part of this Jesus family. Say, okay, well, then you need to look like us and act like us and talk like us so that you can be one of God's chosen people too. And so the leaders of the church had a problem what do we do? Is this right? Do, do people who aren't Jewish need to sound like us and act like us and look like us, sometimes in some very personal ways? Or is this really for everybody? And so all the bigwigs of this church movement gathered together, all the who's who, the people that we know throughout the New Testament as the famous leaders of the church, they get together and they have a meeting. Their church, of course they had a meeting. They get together, and sure enough, we find Peter talking again. So this is in Acts chapter 15, where Peter speaks up in the middle, uh, middle of this meeting, Acts chapter 15, verse 7. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows, brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, by giving them his power and his presence just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Remember, we knew the right rules, but we kept wandering away. We kept finding other gods. We couldn't do it. Why do we expect them to do it? He says, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. This is a societal question. Who is God? Is God good? Is God good and who gets to belong to God? Does everybody get to belong to God and they come up with a resounding yes? So this is a cultural, societal question. Are we gonna be a place where people don't all have to look and act and sound the same? Are we gonna be a movement where everybody's welcome here? Yes. 
Okay, so that's the societal part. But this is also a deeply personal question. They're, they're not just talking about cultures and nations. They're talking about people. Do these people, these individuals get to belong to God? And this is a deeply personal question that we're all asking. Do I belong to God? If God is good, do I get to belong to him? If God is harsh, do I belong to him? If God is anyone that we could have a relationship with or be responsible to, do I belong to God? Who is this God? Am I on his side? Is God with me? Now, the first question could have lots and lots of different answers. Scripture teaches a few specific ones, but it could have lots and lots of answers. This one basically has three, as far as I can figure it. Do I belong to God? Yes, no, or I don't know. But incredibly important for us and for our souls to wrestle with. Do I belong to God? So I just want to give us, we'll give 10 seconds this time, because there's only three options. How would you answer this question? Honestly, do I belong to God? For Peter, when he denied three times that he even knew Jesus, it became clear to him that he no longer belonged to God. He was convinced that he had failed. And yes, Jesus had said the nice things about him before, about building the church on him, whatever that meant. But, but as he ran away weeping bitterly, he knew he was done. He knew he'd failed. He knew he'd messed up. And he knew there was no chance of redemption because who would... <laughs> Who would welcome him back in? Because clearly Jesus knew this was gonna happen. He knows it has happened. He looked Peter in the eye. He knew what had happened. How could Peter ever go back? And why, how could Jesus ever take him back? He knew he was too far gone. That there was going to be no belonging to this Jesus movement anymore. He didn't even bother showing up to the crucifixion. This man that he had loved and followed for three years is publicly shamed, publicly killed, and Peter can't even show up. The only reason we see him in the resurrection story is because some other women went to the tomb and they came and said, hey, Peter, you're gonna wanna see this. He thought the movement was over. Now maybe it's not, but it's over for him. Whatever plans Jesus had for him are clearly gone now. He's failed too much. So how do we get from that Peter to this one in Acts chapter 15 who's saying, brothers, you know that God chose me? Well, it's, it's not what Jesus, or it's not what Peter did, it's what Jesus did. 
is through Jesus' death and resurrection, his grace, undeserved grace for all of us. For me, for you, for Peter. So one more time that Peter is asked some questions. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus appeared to uh, hundreds of people. He appeared to his disciples multiple times. They could touch and feel him. He would eat with them. And one morning they're eating breakfast on the beach. As they're all sitting around having their meal, Jesus looks at Peter, and this is in the Gospel of John, another Jesus follower. The very end, I'm in chapter 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Remember I said, put a pin in that? Where Jesus said, Simon, son of John. Now you're now you're Peter. Well, now Peter has failed. And Jesus says, okay, then we're just gonna start all over. Let's try this again, Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, you are Peter, and you will lead this church movement. You will feed my sheep. You are recommissioned to go. Do you love me? God is asking you this question. Every time you open scripture, every time you have to decide how to treat someone else, every time you consider creation, every time you're open-handed about what to do next, God is saying, do you love me? And this is the question that scripture cannot answer, that drives the whole story to give us the opportunity to love God, but, but it is obviously so personal. And yet from the beginning, the Bible assumes this question is at the core of our needs as a human being. Do I love God? Every soul cries out, do I love God? We're commanded to love God. Scripture can do that. We're commanded to love God. But this isn't robotic obedience. The gift of choice is a core principle of the Bible. This isn't about belief either. This isn't just some sort of intellectual agreement that God is real. This is relational and this is personal, just as it is for Jesus and Peter. Do you love me? 
Peter, do you love me? Peter, this was never about what you can accomplish or how brave you are or how smart you are. You can't earn my love. I am love. My question, Peter, is do you love me? And if you do, then take care of people. Put others first. Love the people around you. If you do, Peter, then trust that you belong to me no matter what. No matter what the failure is, Peter, I need you to trust that I love you. The question is, do you love me? And God cries out to every one of us this is not about what you can accomplish or how brave you are or how smart you are. You cannot earn my love. I am love. The question is not whether I love you. The question is, do you love me? And if you do, love the people around you. Put others first and know that you belong to me. That you can be part of this, you can experience my love no matter what the failure is. Another early church leader named Paul would go on to write that anyone, anyone who believes that Jesus is Lord and agrees that believes that God raised him from the dead belongs to this movement belongs to God, is God's people. You do not have to look the right way, sound the right way, talk the right way. God says to you, you are loved. The question is, do you love God? At the bottom of your notes, there's four little blanks. or four little lines. And how you fill these out is a collection of the questions that scripture is asking you, that scripture assumes is at the core of your soul. To say, God, you are, what? God, you are, harsh, you are judgmental, you are love, you are kind, you are forgiving, you are my hope. God, you are what? And the second one, if you choose to, if you choose to believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you get to fill in the second one with, I am yours. No matter what the failure is, no matter what drives your shame, you could say, I am yours. But, but this is where this pattern gets tricky. Because if you filled in the first one with, you are judgmental, 
You are mean. Then saying, I am yours. I don't know that I want to be at that point. And then, and then what does that mean about you? Because if you say, God, you are love and I am yours, and you can fill in that third one with I am loved. God, you are forgiving and I am yours, so I am forgiven. God, you are judgmental, I am yours, so I am judged and punished. Well, that's gonna change how you fill out the last one. I know in the times of my life where I have felt like God was unfair or God was harsh or mean, I am yours didn't feel real good. And at the end, I'd, I would fill that in with God, I run from you or I am afraid of you. And if the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of God as God's judgment or harshness, you believe God is unfair. I don't blame you for filling it out that way. But I have really, really good news for you. God is love. And he revealed it to the teaching and the love and the miracles and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. And so every single one of us has the opportunity to say, God, you are love, and I am yours. I am loved, and I love you. God, you are love, and I am yours. And I'm loved, and I love you. And if you're somebody who doesn't know how to talk to God, who doesn't know what that would look like, try this. This will work great. God, you are love, and I'm yours, and I'm loved, and I love you. Will you pray with me? Father God, I'm so grateful for everything that you are. God, the things that come into our mind right away, the things that we wrestle with, the things that seem so obvious to us and the things that we easily forget, God, I'm so grateful for who you are. And that you choose to define yourself by your love, love that has to be shared, love that leads to a creation that is good, love that leads to your redemption, love that leads to us being invited into relationship with you and through Jesus being able to say, I am yours. That there's no condemnation that defines me. There's no judgment label that I'm stuck with. God, you are love, I am yours. And somehow, all of that shows me that I am loved. God, would you show us that we are love? And would that love drive us to love the people around us, to take care of the ones that we are around, the people that you have put in our life and in our path? 
God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that no failure rules us out of being yours. Because we're loved, we can be forgiven. God, we love you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.